Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewanfo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. All right. Uh, thank you, Mr. Norbert, for this opportunity to talk to you. It's always an honor here to talk with different people and hear their own side of the story because basically we are all in the journey in this life. So it is important that from time to time we share so that some other persons can also learn from us. All right. So we're going to be spending this uh, this time, this maybe one or two hours. I don't know how long we're going to spend here looking at you, your your history. Uh, where you have worked and all these uh, different good things. So let's start with uh, your self-presentation. Let, let me thank you for uh, letting me share my thoughts here on this uh, on this webcast. I really appreciate that. So thank you very much, Ray. I'm a, um, a professional. I have a, um, uh, my background is engineering. I, uh, uh, I actually uh, studied chemistry in, uh, in Germany. And, uh, but I have spent uh, most of my career um, working in the United States. I um, uh, did, uh, I worked actually uh, 39 years uh, for Goodyear as in, uh, in various roles um, in, in the innovation center at, um, at, at Goodyear, but I had the global responsibility for a long time for three innovation centers, one in uh, the United States, uh, one in Luxembourg and one in Germany. And um, I uh, was uh, uh, quite fortunate because um, the last uh, 15 years of my career, I was asked, um, or mainly it was also a lot uh, my own idea, to go and look what uh, made other companies uh, so successful. And um, one of them that we paid a lot of attention to was Toyota. And um, Toyota has implemented uh, what they call lean manufacturing in their plants. And uh, uh, virtually uh, all automotive uh, uh, companies and many, many other companies in the world uh, jumped on that uh, system, jumped on uh, what they learned from Toyota and many other uh, Japanese uh, companies. And I was um, uh, fortunate to have an opportunity to try to apply that same thinking to the way how we do innovation, to the way how we develop uh, new products. And it worked very, very, very well. And um, I was also given the opportunity then to share um, uh, what I learned in, in, the, in, in, in that time uh, in a book that I uh, published, it's called Lean Driven Innovation. And um, uh, by the way, uh, I wrote that book when um, uh, after I broke my leg, I, I couldn't walk. I had a skiing accident and I could not walk for a whole year. So um, I had a lot of time on my hands and uh, that's when I wrote that book. And now COVID comes along and the uh, same situation again. I, uh, I'm stuck at home uh, for a long time. So I figured, well, there's still so much in my head. There's still so much that I learned in my career uh, that I have not uh, shared with uh, the rest of the world. So um, I just, uh, I have submitted uh, the script for a second book, uh, which kind of um, 
uh, goes a lot further than my first book, but the subject is still the same. How can we get much, much, much better at doing innovation? How can companies get much better at um, uh, bringing out new products and uh, actually making money on those uh, new products and uh, grow their business and, uh, and become leaders in their industry? So um that uh, the the covid actually gave me an an opportunity to further um i'm doing consulting work uh, it um, i did a lot of consulting work actually before covid but um, uh, of course covid has completely um, stopped uh, well not completely but has reduced that work um, uh, tremendously i um, uh, i don't travel and a lot of companies um, uh, just have uh, other stuff to worry about than, um, uh, than uh, what I have been able to teach them. I uh, do some workshops, but uh, not so much. So again, a very welcome opportunity to, uh, to sit down and put my thoughts on paper. Uh, the script is with the publisher, but the book isn't printed yet. So. All right, that's interesting. That's in, a, in a nutshell, uh, what I've been doing the last few years. So. <laughs> that's interesting, and really, it's uh, it's quite a lot. Of course, in the course of this podcast, we are going to have time to to look at it one after the other. Uh, we would like to know from the beginning uh, when you were born and when you were growing up as a as a boy. Uh, tell us oh, yeah. more about that. That is uh, very interesting. But that was some uh, long time ago, video, um, uh, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I um, I was born in Luxembourg, and uh, I grew up on a farm, on a, on a very small farm. And um, uh, I was uh, uh, one of the baby boomers. Uh, I was born uh, right after they um, uh, they started to recover from World War Two. My um, my parents and um, the, the village and so on. It was hit very, very, very hard uh, in um, in the war, and in fact, uh, they had just. Uh, I was born uh, right after they had been able to rebuild um, uh, the houses and uh, rebuild uh, their lives uh, to uh, to a good extent. Um, the 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 fifties were a little uh, hard. Uh, the sixties uh, became a very good time in in Europe. I uh, I went to school in uh, in Luxembourg. Did my high school in uh, in Luxembourg. Uh, did my grade school. Uh, well, I learned Luxembourgish as a kid, of course. Did my uh, grade school uh, in Luxembourg uh, in German in the German language. Then I went to high school, and it switched to French. High school in Luxembourg is taught. Um, uh, largely in uh, in the French language, and uh, after that, um, uh, after I did my uh, my baccalaureate in uh, in Luxembourg, uh, uh, I went uh, to college in Germany. Uh, I had decided to uh, study chemistry, and uh, Germany is uh, uh, at least at that time was an excellent country uh, to go um, uh, to go study uh, 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 chemistry and. Uh, so I spent uh, six years uh, living in Germany, studying and uh, working there a little bit. And then uh, I hired in uh, with Goodyear in, um, in, in Luxembourg. Uh, they have an innovation center in Luxembourg. And that's why I worked uh, a few years. And in the 80s, um, things in Luxembourg were not doing very well. Um, it, uh, there was a very, very serious crisis. 
It was a global crisis, but Luxembourg was hit very, very hard because uh, the, the only really big industry that Luxembourg had was the steel industry, and the steel industry took a huge big hit at that time. And um, uh, it was actually a very good time to, uh, to go and uh, move and um, uh, learn uh, other experiences. So I had the opportunity to go to the United States, but then um, I got uh, kind of stuck there. I was working on a very, very big project, actually uh, an innovation project that uh, had discretionary funding by the company. And um, so uh, I got kind of, uh, I say stuck, but on the other side, it, uh, it was okay to get stuck here in the United States. And uh, now, I, uh, now I live in Ohio. Actually, I live in Akron, Ohio, where the, which is uh, still the home of the, of the rubber industry. And, uh, but I also uh, spend a lot of time now in, in Florida. It's much warmer in Florida in the winter. So I enjoy, um, uh, since I'm retired now, to spend more time in the winter in the, in the warmer part of the, of the United States. Very interesting. Uh, I will ask you one question uh, relating to your early uh, years before we move to uh, the current situation, of course, your work and some of the situation there. So when you were growing up, you were you grew up. You were born in the fifties, if I'm not if I'm not wrong on that. That is uh, accurate. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you were uh, in the fifties. Of course, the world has ended. Uh, now, um, did you had the chance to maybe have have some curiosity with your parents, like asking them their experience of the war because they were physically there. They saw what happened. What did they tell yes. you about the war? What was your experience in those times? Well, my first experience is that they did not talk about it. It, um, it is something that I experienced a lot. The people who had lived through the war, actually uh, Luxembourg very hard. Uh, what had uh, the, put it like that? Uh, in the, um, uh, at the beginning of the war, uh, Luxembourg was occupied. Uh, uh, of course, that little country couldn't um, uh, resist at all. There was virtually no resistance. The country was just occupied by the Germans and the Germans established their rule in the, in the country. Uh, some of my relatives uh, were forced to go and uh, uh, join the German army. Uh, my dad uh, was the only uh, worker on a farm and uh, the only male um, uh, on the farm. So uh, he was spared from uh, being forced into the service because uh, the Germans knew very well that they needed the farms uh, to, to, grow, uh, to grow food. Uh, of course, the farms were uh, obligated to uh, donate, uh, what was it, 80 or 90% of what they produced. Uh, they had to, uh, to, uh, to, to give it to the German army. So my dad did not have to go fight, uh, but, uh, there, and there was the German occupation during the war. Um, which was very, very hard on, on, on the, uh, their sisters to, uh, uh, and she was, uh, had to take care of them at a very, very early age. And still living, they weren't married at that time. She was living in, in, in a different village. But then what happened uh, after the Battle of the Bulge, the big, uh, when the, the Germans tried to push forward, uh, back into towards the uh, to uh, to stop uh, the allies from coming in um, uh, from uh, the the Normandy 
the the a big battle was fought in um, in Bastogne, uh, which is kind of uh, very close to um, to where I grew up. And what happened is the Allies pushed the Germans back, and that happened to be straight through the village where I grew up. So uh, the the house where I grew up was actually completely destroyed. There was nothing left of the uh, virtually nothing left of the house. It was completely bombed. Uh, the my uh, my parents survived. They were in a shelter uh, in the same village, not actually not very far away from that. Uh, they they did survive the uh, the bombing, but um, they had lost everything they had. The, uh, there was uh, reparations were done. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, they uh, they got uh, uh, help uh, rebuilding their, their their house, but they had lost everything else. The the, the cattle, everything. Um, uh, I don't know. They they never knew what happened. So they. Uh, the, uh, they may have been uh, the Germans may have been smart enough to to let them go. They knew the place would get bombed because they were hiding there. Uh, so um, it it was a difficult time, a very difficult time for them. They had to live with relatives for a while because they had no home anymore. And then uh, starting to rebuild the farm. Of course, they still had their land, but they didn't have any animals anymore. So uh, they had to start pretty much uh, from scratch there. And uh, I, uh, it was funny. I still have some... Um, furniture uh, that my uh, granddad made and uh, he made it all from um, from leftover um, uh, ammunition boxes uh, he um, uh, the uh, uh, of course when the the germans were pushed back uh, a lot of stuff was left behind and uh, uh, i uh, uh, found a helmet in my uh, uh, in my parents house uh, a German helmet that was left in the field somewhere, and uh, I, uh, there were lots of ammunition boxes left behind, and they were normally um, uh, Allied ammunition boxes, not German ones, and uh, they, um, uh, that's what my granddad used to make furniture for the, for the house, and I still uh, have some of those pieces, and uh, when I cleaned it up, and I still saw the original print uh, on there that um, uh, that. Uh, it, it was a howitzer box that uh, that he made furniture from. Yeah, that's what people had at that time, and that, that's what they used. But the recovery was relatively uh, good. So uh, in the in the sixties, uh, uh, when I started to go to school, a lot of the the war was behind the people. The, the standard of living was still relatively low at that time, but uh, a lot of the war sufferings uh, were put behind. But uh, nobody wanted to talk about. Uh, I have. Uh, 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 very, very little information, only direct questions uh, would be answered and um, uh, uh, they would not be answered uh, with a lot. Uh, they, they would be just uh, yes and no uh, answers. Uh, the experience that I had is that people who lived through the war did not want to talk about it. So, uh, mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Of course, war is not... Uh... It's not a good experience to talk about. Uh, in Nigeria, for example, we had a three years war uh, where a lot, a lot of people died only for three yeah. years. Uh, yeah. We lost so many people in Nigeria. And until date, uh, very little is said about it. Um, okay, sometimes it can also be for the father. It's not a, it's not a good memory. But of course, the case of uh, the European war, 
uh, yes, a lot of documentation is, is available uh, to sort of help the people to understand what have gone on. Of course, this after uh, many years have passed on. So what I'm trying to understand there is um, from your experience, was there a reason where they decide not to talk much about the war or was it a kind of uh, individual um, reason, something like that? Well, uh, I, uh, my experience was that uh, it was not just my parents. Other people who uh, suffered through the war, uh, war did not uh, like to talk about it either. And uh, there were a lot of books written about the war, but uh, they were written, um, some were written by the generation that went through the war, very few. But I uh, noticed that uh, the next generation would start um, uh, be, uh, collecting artifacts and uh, start to write about that uh, museums were created um, uh, and so on, the war museums were created. But that all happened one generation uh, later. The, uh, the, the, the people who lived through the war, that was my experience, really. Um, nobody was so, um, so much interested in, 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 in talking about. Of course, there were um, uh, it, uh, there was just like, um, uh, for example, the people who were were, uh, were put in concentration camps and so on. Uh, they tried to uh, uh, make sure that uh, that memory uh, stayed, that uh, that it wasn't forgotten what happened. But on the other side, I also noticed that um, uh, a lot of people were interested more in healing, uh, getting this over with, and rebuilding um, uh, relationships and. Uh, and so on. And uh, during my generation, I remember when I was in high school, um, my, my colleagues, uh, they, they were much more interested in rebuilding, uh, in, um, in, in, in re uh, I mean, not forgetting what happened, but they, they were more interested in uh, not letting what happened get in the way of rebuilding uh, Europe, uh, rebuilding um, the relationship with, uh, with other nations and, uh, and so on and so on. And uh, by the time I went to Germany for college, I mean, uh, pretty much uh, uh, that everything was forgotten and, uh, and not, not forgotten, uh, uh, not forgotten, but nobody um, uh, uh, let uh, get any of that get in the way of uh, building um, new friendships and new relationships uh, between countries. So. Mm -hmm. You know, I really want to pick out one thing from there that, of course, we are moving on now. We are not going to go any further in the in the world experience, even though actually it's part of our history. So we we cannot forget it. So uh, for the historian, for those who are able to uh, narrate what has happened, we're going to treasure those experience because it's part of our human experience. We cannot run away from it. But today we are not going to concentrate on that. But I want to pick out something that you said. No which had to do with the healing, that there was a deliberate effort to concentrate on the healing. Because we are yeah. not perfect as a human beings as we are. We do make mistakes. We do go wrong sometimes. But we should uh, allow ourselves to, uh, to continuously suffer for the error that we have made. So we must make effort to, to heal, to heal ourselves, to heal the world, and to move on. So that is very, very important. Uh, so as we are moving away from that uh, conversation, the people that were living at the time, say in the 50 and early 60, moving forward, did you know whether maybe the impact of the world affected their choice of career? Like now, 
there is no war anymore uh, but you are living in a war called that have that have just had a bad experience does that influence their choice of career because you decide to go and study engineering and and uh, was it engineering i'm making a mistake yes, there it, yeah yeah engineering chemistry engineering. Yeah, ah, okay yeah. so did anything influence your own decision much like every other person at the time not really um the uh um one one thing that did influence it very heavily, uh, Luxembourg is an extremely small country, and um, today uh, it's part of the European Union, and the European Union has opened opportunities uh, for everybody. But when I grew up, uh, the European Union was not even uh, well. Yeah, there, there there were a little bit of agreements. In fact, the Luxembourg had an. Uh, a little union with Belgium and, uh, and Holland at that time, but uh, the, it did not make a huge big impact. But the, there were really, really, really very limited choices. For example, uh, there were no universities in Luxembourg. If you uh, wanted to go to university, you had to um, uh, leave the country. And um, there again, uh, some countries, uh, uh, most countries were actually relatively open to, uh, to, to accept students from Luxembourg, but the, the, uh, the, 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 the education programs weren't aligned at all. So uh, it, it was sometimes uh, very difficult uh, to get in or to, to catch up. So that was very limited. The other thing that was extremely limited at that time, um, uh, there wasn't uh, the freedom to move around. Uh, it, it was not just like you go uh, and if you don't find uh, work in Luxembourg, you go uh, uh, work in another country. Today you can do that. The European Union allows you to do that today. But uh, when I grew up, that uh, was not the case. And uh, so very, very limited opportunities uh, for uh, uh, for a career uh, at that time. And in fact, um, uh, when I hired in uh, with Goodyear, Goodyear was virtually at that time, the only company uh, in Luxembourg where you could uh, apply for a job, uh, in, especially in the 80s when, uh, when there was a, uh, as I said, when there was a, a significant, uh, when there was a significant crisis. And, uh, and I had to uh, call myself fortunate at that time to even, to even find a job right away. Uh, I could have, of course, since I had a degree from Germany, I could have, I would have had the opportunity already at that time to go work in Germany. So it was not that it was not possible, but uh, it wasn't. Um, uh, it, uh, it it was already a little bit uh, more difficult to do. But the, the the lack of opportunity at that time um, in that small country. Uh, was a big factor today, uh, of course, uh, very, very much different. Uh, Luxembourg is a great country to live uh, in today. And uh, with what the European Union brought to it is, is absolutely uh, uh, changed all that, of course, uh, changed all that to the, to the better. Yeah, yeah, of course, in the time of crisis, we suffer together. In the time of peace, too, we also enjoy it together because Luxembourg <laughs> is being a small country that is surrounded by by a bigger country. Of course, if the economy is flourishing in Germany, it's just impossible that it cannot reach a small country like Luxembourg and, and all that. Of course, thanks to the European Union, like you are saying, 
uh, that is one of the things I actually appreciate also of the union that are formed by people and by countries uh, like the European Union because they try also to to protect their common interests that have to be always right. uh, on the line because it is very very important that uh, people organize themselves and protect their common interests. Uh, now uh, I'm trying to see when you first started with Goodyear. Uh, what was your experience like? Was it that you you went there to search for work? They called you, or how did you get to Goodyear to start with? Well, uh, uh, Goodyear was one of the very few companies at that time uh, that uh, hired people in Luxembourg. Um, the steel industry um, had uh, gone through a very, very, very rough time. And um, there was a uh, early 80s, there was a very significant uh, crisis uh, in the world, but uh, it had hit uh, uh, Europe much, much, much harder. Uh, you also have to uh, remember that at that time, there weren't any of those uh, agreements. There was not a common currency. There was uh, not these open borders and so on. Uh, there was uh, some agreements uh, between the countries. Um, I could have gone uh, work in a different country, um, uh, but uh, there again, uh, the crisis had hit uh, virtually um, uh, all uh, the the, uh, the Central European countries. So um, and Goodyear hired because um, they had established a global innovation center in Luxembourg. Luxembourg the, the innovation center in Luxembourg was not only responsible uh, for uh, for the the plant in Luxembourg, but it was responsible for all uh, Europe and the Middle East and uh, and Africa. And at that time, even Latin America. So um, that's why uh, Goodyear needed um, uh, uh, the, the, the talent there. And that's why they, uh, uh, they, they were hiring people. So uh, that's how, uh, and I did take the job knowing um, uh, that uh, the jobs were hard to come by and uh, you never know what happens. Uh, well, let's uh, look and uh, wait and see. But then a few years later, I, um, I was always uh, an, inno an innovator. I always uh, had uh, many, many more ideas than I could, have <laughs> I could actually uh, reduce to practice. And uh, one of my ideas um, that I had submitted through an, uh, an idea submission system had been approved for funding and the very significant funding. And that brought me uh, uh, to the United States on a temporary assignment, which uh, then turned into a permanent assignment. All right, that is interesting. I'm going to talk about that invention, uh, that innovation that brought it to the United States. You had an, a system where if you had an, a great new idea, you could uh, submit it and uh, uh, then uh, people looked at it and if it was considered uh, uh, an, uh, a worthwhile idea, uh, they uh, provided uh, direct funding for it. And uh, I did uh, do that. Uh, and uh, that is actually was my first uh, big project when I came to the United States uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, work on, uh, on that innovation. And uh, it uh, was successful. Uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, probably five, six, seven years later, a plant uh, was built uh, here in the United States to produce that product that uh, that I had invented. And that is actually what uh, brought me to the United States and what kept me here. Uh, 
um, actually it kept me here for so much time that by the time I had an opportunity to move back to Europe, my uh, uh, I have two boys and uh, they were already in um, in the school at that time in the in the American school system and um, I mean that would have been very hard uh, to to move back at that time and to make them um, leave all their friends and their schools and so on and start over so that uh, but on the other side, uh, it's not uh, uh, the United States is not a bad country to live in either. So I have to make that very clear. So. All right, that is important. Of course, there are a lot of people that are trying to get to the United States <laughs> from all corners of the world. So we certainly cannot say it's a bad country to live in. Of course, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. We cannot say that. All right, now you said uh, a lot about uh, your invention and um, and your innovation. Can you uh, spend some time explaining what exactly do you do you work on in invention? What do you invent? What do you work on in innovation? Tell us about it. Well, in this case, um, it was a new product. It it was a new product um, uh, that uh, was uh, very important for the the truck uh, the, the the truck industry, and it also used a um, a very innovative uh, new process. Um, uh, uh, it's uh, that's very popular. Uh, virtually every piece of plastic uh, today um, is made uh, by injection molding and. Um, uh, so um, that is also a technology that uh, is very popular um, uh, uh, to to produce rubber to uh, to process rubber. It's very very difficult and it's very expensive, but in this case um, uh, uh, it did work and um, uh, Goodyear did uh, build a plant in um, in, uh, in in Texas. Uh, but then, uh, due to um, uh, do other reasons, uh, the uh, financial reasons mostly, Goodyear got into a crisis at the end of the 80s. Uh, the plant uh, uh, manufacturer, manufacturer in the United States could not be expanded, but the product is still out there. And, uh, but uh, the company had to decide to outsource, uh, to outsource the product. Uh, that was and uh, what we are talking about. Uh, they invested many, many millions uh, into the, the research, the development of this of this uh, of this product. Uh, the product was uh, worked well, was quite successful. But as I said, um, uh, uh, products are not the only thing. Um, the, the the company got into a big financial crisis uh, a few years after the the product was launched and. Um, uh, even though the product worked well, uh, it had to be eventually outsourced because the capital was not there to expand the manufacturing um, uh, here in the United States. So, um, but um, that's how uh, things go, and that's um, very important in uh, part of also innovation. Uh, it's uh, an idea is not uh, all what uh, uh, what innovation is about. Uh, to turn the idea into a successful product is uh, difficult, and then uh, to sustain um, uh, to sustain the product uh, 
uh, in the industry and in the world uh, with everything that um, that happens is um, is the next big uh, part of an innovation. Goodyear is in is in, in Ohio. Well, uh, Goodyear was uh, founded here in Ohio, actually in the city where I uh, live right now, Akron, Ohio. And um, not only Goodyear, all the other tire companies were here. The, the American tire companies were here. Um, Firestone was here. General Tires was here. Uh, but then uh, as in the 80s, um, all uh, those uh, American companies were purchased, um, uh, like um, uh, Bridgestone purchased Firestone and uh, they moved uh, to Nashville, uh, Tennessee, and then Michelin uh, bought, um, uh, bought Goodrich and they moved uh, to the Carolinas and then uh, Continental bought um, about General Tire, and they also moved to the Carolinas. So at the end of the day, um, Goodyear was the only tire company left here in Akron, Ohio. Um, Goodyear has since, um, uh, is not producing uh, a lot of tires anymore. Goodyear only makes race tires here in Akron. Uh, everything else, uh, and of course, the, the research and development uh, the center is here in Akron, Ohio. Uh, with um, over 1,000 people. and um, But then uh, the rest of the research and development is done in, in Luxembourg and is done in, um, in Germany in a town uh, close to, to Frankfurt. All right. Now, uh, is there any reason uh, maybe um, for logistic or maybe for raw material that made all the tire company to be concentrated at one time um, in Ohio? Yeah, a long time ago, uh, there may have been, uh, there was a little bit of automotive industry. Uh, when the automotive industry started in the United States, um, uh, there was a part of it that actually started in, uh, in this area, in the Cleveland area, but then it very quickly moved to Detroit. Um, Detroit is very close to, uh, to Akron, Ohio, and there really was not a reason at that time to, uh, to relocate. Um, so I think that's what uh, uh, made the, 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 the companies uh, stay here. Um, of course, uh, uh, now uh, uh, after all the consolidation and everything had happened, um, uh, there is very little um, tire manufacturing done here in Akron. Goodyear still has the, the race tire plant. And I think um, uh, Firestone has uh, recently uh, reinvested into uh, experimental manufacturing here, so which is kind of a good thing. But um, the, the main reason, uh, I think, for the companies to stay uh, for this long was the talent that, that, that was here. Um, uh, and um, uh, you could uh, easily find uh, the experts here in this area. And maybe that was the reason why the technical organizations have stayed here. And maybe why Goodyear has stayed here. Mm -hmm. Another curiosity that I'm beginning to have now is uh, the raw material, maybe probably coming from outside. Because uh, I originally am from Nigeria, so in Nigeria, yeah. in the state where I am from. <laughs> okay, go on. Maybe you know what I'm going to say. Go, go, go. Add your voice. Well, no raw materials. That natural rubber, of course, is a uh, is a is a commodity that um, that comes from uh, countries. Especially, uh, there is natural rubber production in Africa. That's why I was laughing, and I. Uh, 
I believe uh, the, the, the countries around the equator, I'm not exactly familiar what role Nigeria uh, would play in that, uh, but still most uh, natural rubber is coming from uh, the Far East, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia. Uh, that's where uh, the, the trees grows, uh, grow the, the best. Uh, uh, some of it uh, was also done in, in Latin America, but it never really uh, took hold. Um, uh, some of it is produced in Africa still, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure about that. But um, that became a huge big issue, of course, uh, during the war, um, where the Germans invented the synthetic rubber. And um, uh, so today, virtually all um, other raw materials than uh, the natural rubber can be produced anywhere in the world. Uh, but natural rubber is still um, uh, coming from uh, those those uh, favorite places where it grows the best and the best quality comes from there. And uh, quite honestly, um, the, the industry has not succeeded to replace natural rubber, uh, has not succeeded to replace the rubber that grows on the tree. Uh, you can synthetically produce the same rubber, but it's not the same quality. So. And uh, the other good thing, what I like about natural rubber, it's a renewable resource. Uh, it grows on a tree and uh, it's, it's not that uh, you don't dig it out of the ground and it's gone forever. It, uh, it's renewable. You can um, uh, plant more trees and uh, you get more natural rubber and the, the trees are good for the environment too. So it's actually, uh, I'm glad that um, that it still plays a major role. Unfortunately, it also plays it has a big economic impact when the yields are bad. Uh, one year, of course, it um, it uh, uh, the prices all skyrocket and draw everything with it. But uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, no difference from any agricultural product there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that's correct. Uh, during this year that you were there in, in New Year, and I think you are still, sorry, in Good Year, I think you're you are still there, even though uh, you are retired. Do, do you still collaborate with them? Uh, yeah, but not a lot. Uh, it, um, uh, it, I still uh, have contact uh, more with my friends than, um, than anything else. I, um, uh, I do, um, I did do some uh, workshops there for, for the Shingo Institute here in the United States that, um, uh, that, uh, that I did there where they opened uh, the, the plant. I also um, had some, uh, 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 when I uh, did, I did a conference on innovation a few years ago in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, uh, they let uh, the, the participant visit the innovation center, those kind of things but um, but not a lot more um, I definitely um, uh, I uh, I left uh, good uh, things behind I did write a, even write a book about um, uh, uh, what I learned there so uh, they have excellent documentation I had uh, written a um, uh, many training classes that uh, uh, that, uh, that that that, that uh, of course state with the company so they would not uh, need uh, me to to help them with anything of that but that's about uh, the the, uh, the the contact that i uh, that i have uh, and i understand that you you were working as an international representative um, in, the, in the company can you explain to us what exactly you were doing in new year in those areas 
Yeah, I said global responsibility. That means um, the the process that I developed for R and D. Um, uh, of course, it, it was developed in the in the United States, but then it was expanded uh, into the Innovation Center in uh, in Luxembourg and the Innovation Center in uh, in Hanau in Germany. That's what I meant, and uh, with global responsibility, and uh, I uh, kind of uh, uh, kept that uh, uh, responsibility. So I had to go there quite often. Uh, travel uh, to uh, uh, to those uh, centers, uh, both for education, for workshops, and and so on, and um, and for help uh, with uh, when they needed it. But to be quite honest, they did not need a lot of help. Uh, we had a very good education system at Goodyear, and uh, very early on uh, realized that um, uh, that the expansion and uh, the sustainability of uh, of all this work is directly linked to education and we did a very good job educating our own people and uh, to be quite honest after i uh, i did the education in um, in in luxembourg and in germany they picked up most of the work on their own and uh, that was good that, that's how it's supposed to work by the way i'm, I'm still doing a lot of that today uh, i say i'm a consultant but i'm really not a consultant i uh, I'm, I'm really only a teacher i like to teach people uh, how to so that they learn and then they can do it themselves it's like uh, rather than uh, uh, than uh, 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 feeding the the people uh, the world bank has preached this for a very long time um, you can feed somebody by giving him a fish but you can also teach that person to fish and uh, to be self-sustainable and uh, in the long term uh, the impact of that education uh, pays off uh, a thousand times and uh, that's something I learned many many times myself so uh, I'd rather teach and um, uh, coach people to get started and then they can do the work on their own and um, and um, okay it's uh, I eliminated my job there that's okay I uh, that that did happen uh so so what then i uh, just go and um, teach somebody else or um, uh, happily uh, stay retired that's really interesting all right now in this uh, course of training in this course of uh, creating center for innovation uh, of course looking at new uh, good year where you have worked uh, were there anyone apart from europe and america where you have this um, center for innovation for training that you know of well uh, at Goodyear, the uh, the decision was made to uh, to build a center in um, uh, in luxembourg in the in the 60s and uh, there was a very good uh, decision and uh, in uh, the german center came uh, came from uh, the merger of Goodyear with uh, sumitomo uh, in the 90s uh, and um, uh, the uh, Goody also has an, uh, a center in China, in uh, in Shanghai, and a very small um, uh, operation in in Brazil. The reason uh, that had to be done is uh, to get closer to the customers. Um, uh, you can do the research um, uh, in a central location. 
but uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, let's call it intelligence uh, finding out uh, what uh, different parts of the of the world need um, you could even do that market research um, uh, by uh, having a very small office in, in different places of the world. But uh, if you want to get uh, close to the customer, work with the customers uh, directly and close with the customers, uh, you have to be uh, located close to the customer. And it's not enough that you just have a person there. Um, you really, um, uh, it helped a lot. Uh, to uh, manufacture the experimental tires in Luxembourg and uh, it helps a lot uh, to have a um, an, a test track in Brazil where you can then uh, produce the tires in the plant in Brazil and the next day have the customer out there and uh, and test the tires together with the customer on the uh, on the on the test track that uh, that they have in in Brazil so uh, that is the main reason that was the driving force uh, the, the the general research uh, you could do uh, in a central location, but uh, not um, the direct work with the customer. And uh, I think a lot of other companies uh, have made uh, made very similar experiences. So, uh, besides the rubber industry or beyond the rubber industry, so or the tire industry. And I'm talking specifically of Brazil and the center that you had there. What was that center actually doing? Was it to uh, collect the the? Was it in, in up to the point of producing the tires, or just collecting the material and then sending it over to the factory in the US? Or what what role was that having that in Brazil? Well, the uh, uh, the the tires, of course, uh, are made in Brazil. Brazil has a very big uh, car industry. A lot of uh, big companies like Toyota they they build tires. They build cars in in Brazil. Uh, so uh, you, uh, you if if you want to participate in that market, uh, you have to produce the tires in Brazil. So uh, uh, and uh, even though uh, some of the engineers uh, did the, the design work um, in uh, in the United States, um, uh, there were engineers involved uh, when the tire was produced in in Brazil, the submission tires that uh, uh, that then the customer would test, and uh, then uh, the testing was done with local uh, engineers and uh, and uh, and the customers. And if uh, changes had to be made, uh, uh, they they were made directly in the plant in Brazil. So uh, that's how that business works. Mm -hmm. All right. Th thank you for that. And before you were saying that uh, Goodyear now uh, now produce more of racy tires. I don't know if I get that r right. Was that yes. what? Okay. Yeah, is there any is there any is there any explanation for that? Why they don't? Because they a lot of people are still buying cars these days. Why did they have to shift to only racy tires? Well, um, Goodyear has a very long history of uh, of, uh, of racing, and uh, and Goodyear was uh, very heavily involved in Formula One, and um, and uh, and uh, also um, what was uh, at that time IndyCar racing in the United States, mostly open wheel racing. And um, in the 90s, uh, the decision was made uh, not to support uh, the open wheel uh, uh, racing anymore and concentrate on uh, uh, North American racing, 
which is uh, uh, NASCAR, that's uh, an, uh, like, uh, it used to be called stock car. It's an, um, uh, it's an uh, different type of racing. It's uh, not open wheel, it's cars that look almost like uh, the cars that drive on the street. And uh, it has, uh, uh, it is a very, very popular sports event here in the United States, especially in the, in the southern um, uh, states of, the, of this country. And Goodyear made the decision to focus more on, uh, on NASCAR. Then. And uh, Goodyear has the exclusive, um, uh, with, with NASCAR, the exclusive tire supply. And those tires are produced in, uh, in Akron, Ohio, uh, still produced in Akron, Ohio. When you were still, of course, operating there, because you were uh, taking an important position there, uh, when you want to go into a country to maybe, uh, okay, in the case of Brazil, like you said, because there are a lot of big companies in Brazil who are uh, uh, participated in the in the market, and of course, it becomes justifiable if you want to invest a bit, millions of dollars in a company there. So maybe, for example, you want to enter the Italian uh, market or uh, the French market, do you what really are the decision that make you enter into some of these markets or do you just go there because you want to make favor to the country yeah okay that uh, it's an, uh, let's step back in history a little bit before uh, the european union uh, was um, established the way it is today uh, goodyear actually had a tire uh, plant in italy and um, at that time goodyear had tire plants in, in many many different countries and but uh, then over time uh, with uh, the new um, uh, open markets and so on uh, a lot of those uh, plants got um, uh, got consolidated and uh, but if you want to enter the market like in 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 a market in a new country um, like let's take Italy. Um, I'm sure Goodyear says that still sells a lot of tires in Italy. Um, I do know that uh, the, we worked a lot with uh, with uh, the Italian car manufacturers, with uh, especially Fiat, and uh, well, Fiat pretty much owns the Italian uh, car market. Now, uh, that's how you would uh, start working. Uh, you would. Um, uh, submit uh, samples to Fiat and the Fiat would approve those tires. It was easier in the past. Mr. Ferrari had decided uh, uh, when he's still an independent company, he loved Goodyear and he wanted Goodyear on, uh, on the Ferrari cars, <laughs> but uh, Ferrari since uh, has changed ownerships and uh, but I uh, and um, that's how you get into um, uh, the automotive market. Uh, if you want to work in the in the renewal market, of course, uh, the, that market has changed very significantly too. Um, uh, you uh, you get on the internet these days. By the way, uh, that has become uh, both in the United States and in Europe a major force. Um, uh, buying tires and it changed uh, the market completely. Um, people look on the internet uh, for 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 feedback on on your products and. Uh, uh, that's very important today, and um, uh, they they get all the options in one page, and uh, they they can get the feedback on performance, on price, and so on. It's very easy to do that kind of research now, um, and a lot of people do that research, and a lot of people do buy uh, their tires online, and um, and then they get shipped to a place uh, that mounts them for them, and. Um, uh, why not? That uh, that 
uh, that's uh, one way. And um, of course, other uh, ways are to work with big retailers uh, or um, work with small uh, shops and uh, many, many, many different ways. Um, but I would not know any details anymore uh, uh, about how good you would do business in these different countries. But um, uh, Europe is, uh, has no borders anymore and um, uh, the internet doesn't have any borders uh, all over the world. So, uh, uh, and that becomes uh, more and more and that has affected everybody who, who makes stuff and sells stuff today. So. Positively, of course, you know, when we don't have border anymore, meaning we can do business yeah, and we don't, we don't have any limitation anymore. That is a good yeah. thing. Or what, do you, what do you think? Um, it is a good thing, but it's also a difficult thing. And uh, what I have uh, found um, going through this, especially in the 90s, uh, even living in the, in the United States, uh, when all the borders opened, I mean, there's no protection anymore. You are now um, faced with, uh, with global competition. You, uh, you have to compete with countries where the manufacturing cost is only a fraction of your own country. You have to compete with uh, uh, different uh, uh, with uh, with different quality with different performance uh, that you didn't have to worry about before, and um, uh, a lot of companies uh, adapted very very well to that new business, and other companies did not. And um, uh, the companies who did not, um, uh, they uh, their days were numbered, of course, because uh, how can you survive um, in an environment like that when you are not able to uh, when you're not able to adapt? And um, especially in Europe, it was uh, very brutal uh, that that open. Uh, competition in the United States, it has been much, much, much slower. And um, uh, uh, especially in the tire industry, it, um, uh, the, the, the politics got involved in it a little bit. Uh, but, uh, but in Europe, it's, an, um, it's a market that is very much dominated by, uh, by open market uh, competition. And um, uh, and now all of a sudden, those uh, countries who paid uh, much higher um, uh, wages had to figure out other ways to compete. And uh, a lot of them did. And actually, um, a lot of them um, uh, use uh, what I was talking about earlier, lean, lean manufacturing and uh, similar things. Um, if you look at Japan, Japan pays uh, very high salaries, uh, but uh, they're very, very competitive. They're very competitive because of, um, of their efficiency and, uh, and their quality. And uh, there are ways to, um, for, for uh, countries uh, to survive and uh, to even thrive in that environment. And um, a lot of them are giving us the example um, uh, like the German uh, car industry is always a, a big one for me. Um, uh, they have always thrived on um, on their performance, on their quality, and um, uh, but also make no mistake, they are extremely efficient. I have had the chance to visit some. Uh, uh, it is unbelievable how much work they, um, uh, how much they invested 
into that efficiency and uh, that's what keeps them uh, what will sustain them for many many years and um, and if the market changes again and it will uh, i'm absolutely sure they will figure it out again and uh, and do whatever is right to do to um, uh, to 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 keep that uh, that leadership position mm. anyway uh, make a mention of um for example, of Fiat being the dominant uh, player in the Italian auto industry, and of course, maybe like the General Motors in the United States or, or BMW in Germany. I was in Germany in, in their Munich uh, exposition office. It's really a beautiful thing. Of course, you can see that these are people that are deeply rooted on the ground, that is nothing that's going to shake them, that's going to shake them uh, anytime soon. Uh, so, of course, these are big companies and they, they have their base well-structured. So, where actually I'm going is that, do you think the companies in the West that, are, that have the, the network, the infrastructure, really should be afraid of competition when the market is open, like, like we have it today? Or should it be the country, country, uh, company in countries like maybe India or in Brazil or in just before now in China, of course, China has taken off that you actually be afraid. That is the question. Yeah, uh, let me uh, uh, split that uh, into, uh, into two parts. Uh, since you talked about the fiat earlier, I think Mr. Marcioni had been a very, very smart man. And, um, uh, and I know that fiat is uh, very, very well positioned uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to play, uh, to continue playing the role uh, they have been, uh, they have been playing. Uh, Mr. Marcioni did not walk away from big challenges and um, he took them right on and I think he made the, the right decisions. A lot of the things that he started have not uh, matured uh, yet. Uh, so uh, I believe that, uh, that uh, Fiat, just like uh, many other um, uh, global uh, players in the car industry, uh, are well positioned to maintain um, the, the position uh, the position they have had uh, but uh, what uh, i always taught uh, told the engineers and here's uh, an important point um, yes companies have outsourced to um, uh, to countries with lower labor cost but other countries uh, have not other uh, other other companies uh, have uh, been able to uh, produce in their country um, and uh, uh, paying the, the 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 labor and uh, uh, thriving uh, that way. And a good example is the German uh, car companies, and I hope that Fiat. I believe Fiat is on uh, on on a similar track. But what I really uh, had to um, uh, live through, and uh, and I think we uh, we made the right decisions there too. And I uh, I still teach that every time I teach a workshop here in the United States, there's nothing easier to outsource than engineering work. All you need is a computer in a different country. That's all you need today. You have your global uh, networks and everything. You have all the access, everything. And um, at one time, uh, companies uh, started to uh, to very significantly outsource engineering work, and um, especially into India, because the talent is there. 
it, it is very easy to find very talented uh, engineers in countries like India. And by the way, you find them in China just as well. I, uh, I still believe China graduates more PhDs uh, every year than, uh, than maybe the rest of the world combined. It, it, it's even hard to have a count because you don't even have the data to know. But the, the, the talent that I personally have, been, have seen in, the, in those countries is absolutely remarkable. And so why would, uh, why would uh, big companies not outsource the engineering, the basic engineering and research into, um, into those countries? The talent is there, it can save them a lot of money. Uh, they will remain connected, especially now with, uh, with, uh, with the virus. I mean, the, with, with coronavirus, people work from home anyway. And, uh, and for me, I always have to ask them, hey, where are you? And <laughs> I don't even know uh, uh, what, uh, what country they are in anymore. And that to me is a huge big danger. And that is a huge big danger for the people who do intellectual work. Intellectual work uh, like uh, creativity, uh, like creative work, engineering work, and so on, can be extremely easy, uh, easily outsourced. And there's only one remedy to that. You have to become better in your own country. And that's what I tell uh, the people. You have the people think they have the talent to innovate and they're the best at that. Good, okay. Well, then try to use some of that talent, not only to concentrate on what you do, but on how you do it. Because it's the how you do it that keeps you competitive globally. And uh, that's actually what, my, what I write a lot about, uh, to, um, uh, to get people's attention to the fact that they have to work differently. And it's not gonna change anymore. It's what they will have to do from here on out. And maybe it's what they should have done uh, in, in the first place all these years. You have to be the best at what you do and how you do it. And that's how companies uh, strive. Uh, that's how companies prosper today. That's how they grow. That's how they become uh, global, uh, global leaders today. It's yeah. not enough to know the engineering work. You have to get better at doing engineering work. It's not enough to be creative today. You have to be better at being creative. You have to be better than everybody else at being creative. And that's how you grow and that's how you uh, prosper. And uh, that is a message that um, some people understand it, but uh, unfortunately, a lot of companies do not understand it. Well, okay, they will uh, one of these days um, get to the point where they have to understand it and, um, uh, and have to change. Now, uh, change is a difficult thing. The, if you are forced to change, that's when most companies change, when they are forced to change, when, the, 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 when things have become so bad that they know they cannot survive anymore. That's when they change. Uh, then they go through a major layoff and uh, reorganization, restructuring, and then they change. But the time to change is before that happens, because then you are ready to hit the ground running and then you are really uh, using the change to your advantage. And uh, it's very, very, very hard to convince companies that it's time to change when things are going well. And it's extremely uh, hard. And uh, I'm working with one uh, uh, client right now. I'm uh, doing workshops and I hear that every day. Why do we change? Why do you say we need to change? We're doing good. And I try to keep telling them, 
that's the time that you need to think about changing. So how can you sustain what you are doing today with anything that can happen to you out there and uh, that you are still doing good in uh, 10 years, 20 years from now? And uh, as I said, extremely hard for companies to understand, but uh, that is really what um, what makes the great companies uh, uh, great companies that they uh, looked in uh, ahead a few years and made sure they had everything in place when uh, when the economy or the technology or whatever uh, whatever came about and um, so I'm, uh, I keep preaching that uh, uh, some people listen, some people will listen, some people will not listen. But that's my uh, that's a, a, a pet subject of mine, by the way, as you may have noticed. So. All right. Now, having said that, that you have said, now we we'll spend some time on innovation now, uh, because uh, you were born in the 50s and you saw what happened uh, after the war, of course. The world is completely different from the 50s and the 60s. The, the kind of world we have today is completely different. It's dominated by extreme sophisticated technology. And according yes. to analysts, we are only in the beginning of it. So yes. what do you what do you really think is driving innovation? Uh, many different, uh, many different things. Uh, there is a um, uh, there is a uh, popular saying that uh, need is uh, driving innovation, and uh, a very good example of that is uh, what happened in the war in Germany. Uh, they didn't have, um, uh, they couldn't get uh, uh, oil, crude oil anymore. So um, uh, they said, "Hey, we have plenty of coal." So why don't we make gasoline out of coal? And uh, it worked very well for the Germans during the war. And um, uh, and um, uh, of course now uh, now economically it's uh, hasn't been so great. Uh, but only economically, uh, if if it if the need comes back, it uh, it will happen again. But uh, let me uh, tell you another story about uh, the Germans in the war. It's uh, very close to a, a big innovation that I did at Goodyear. Um, it was in, in retreading um, uh, uh, truck tires. When uh, the Germans were in Africa, um, uh, actually it was uh, Rammel who uh, uh, had an operation there, uh, they could not uh, get tires anymore. And um, uh, so uh, they wore out uh, the tires and they couldn't get tires anymore. So the Germans were uh, uh, came up with a very uh, innovative retreading process. They cut um, uh, uh, the 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 treads of um, uh, tires where there was some uh, tread left, and um, they buried them in the sand actually to put uh, enough uh, pressure on them. And the sand was, believe it or not, the sand was hot enough to um, uh, to cure them. And uh, they had developed that process. And a person who uh, who was there at that time after the war. He created a company, uh, and the company is still around. It's called Bendek. Uh, his name was, uh, 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 he was from uh, Mannheim, I think. And in fact, his name is hidden in the, in the Bendek name. Uh, Bendek then got uh, purchased by, uh, by Bridgestone. But uh, I know for a fact they are still using that process 
that Mr. Novak had experienced in Africa at that time when they invented it because they couldn't get tires. So that's the story of the need um, uh, causing uh, people to think innovatively. But then if you look at uh, today's environment and um, yes, okay, you can uh, uh, still find uh, customer needs, but uh, uh, most innovation today creates the customer need. Uh, you, uh, when I had a flip phone and a computer, uh, I um, I never saw any need. Why would I need an uh, an iPhone? Okay, but then uh, a smart person uh, uh, at Apple um, uh, he uh, decided to uh, create. Uh, he said, "We have the technology. All I have to do now is find." people who buy it and he was extremely good at that and that was uh, really his, uh, his his forte of doing innovation let me give you another um, uh, piece of information here on innovation i'm sure you all uh, know what i'm uh, uh, what i have here these are sticky notes okay and in the back uh, it says post it and um, uh, the gentleman who invented these, I uh, I know him personally, and um, he lives in uh, in Minneapolis, and um, his name is uh, is uh, Art Fry, and uh, Art told us the story how he invented them. Uh, he um, uh, he was singing in a church choir, and uh, the bookmarks um, uh, were falling out of his songbook when he stood up and uh, held this book in front of him. So um, uh, he. Um, uh, the, he kept uh, thinking and he had seen, uh, you know, this glue that, that's on here. Uh, he had seen that in the lab, actually. They were using it for a different purpose. And then Art put that glue on the sticky nodes and uh, they were sticking to his uh, book. But when he pulled them out, the glue stayed with the book and not with the note. So he uh, solved that problem uh, uh, very quickly then. And uh, he had invented the sticky note. But it took him at least three years to convince anybody in his company and in the world that there was a need for sticky notes. And uh, it's wonderful to listen when I told that story, how, uh, how he tried to, uh, uh, with some friends in, uh, at 3M and so on, uh, convince the rest of the world, hey, you need sticky notes. And uh, to me, um, uh, that is an, uh, a very under-leveraged part of, of innovation still out there. Uh, a lot of the schools still teach innovation as uh, you find a customer pain point, you find something, you find a problem that customers have and uh, you try to solve that problem. But I believe that there's a lot more opportunity into um, uh, this kind of information uh, uh, where uh, the technology has been developed and the world has developed an enormous amount of technology. It, it's just mind boggling uh, the, the, the number of scientists that develop technology every day. But I do think that, um, that the companies have not leveraged that part of the information enough. Uh, looking at uh, the apples, looking at the Googles, looking at um, the, the, uh, the, the, the sticky notes to take um, technical opportunities and to develop a market for it. And that is still, uh, to me, that is uh, today a very big piece of, of, in, of, of innovation and uh, that has yet, uh, that has yet uh, to, be, uh, to be leveraged uh, enough. And um, so, um, 
that uh, kind of thinking I uh, did in um, uh, in my new book. I wrote a lot about that subject because I think that's an important subject uh, for people to understand, to learn, and uh, to um, uh, to to put more attention to. All right. Now, uh, when you talk of innovation, of course, you made mention of uh, the Germans um, taking advantage of the coal during the war because they couldn't get petroleum anymore. Uh, I will also share a, a, a similar story with you. It, it, during the Nigerian Civil War, uh, when the Nigerian army was uh, was pounding so much on the Biafra that the Biafra couldn't have anything anymore, they invented a weapon. By the way, they designed the weapon. It's a kind of a weapon of mass destruction, as it were. It did a very heavy blow to the Nigerian soldiers that were fighting them at the time. Yeah, um, I agree with you that uh, uh, circumstances can actually uh, be powering uh, innovation. But having said that, what should be guiding our innovation? Because now we can innovate things that are very dangerous, no? But we can also innovate yeah. things that can help to make our yeah. life better. Uh, should we be free to invent just anything or should there be some rules on what should be invented? Uh, that is an, uh, a very, very important point. And uh, in fact, uh, again, uh, you hit the nerve here uh, with me on that one. And I, um, uh, I believe that um, uh, the world, uh, especially the industrial world, has lost a lot of its, um, of its, uh, 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 of its ethics. Uh, they don't, um, ethics uh, used to be a part of, uh, of big decisions and um, and I think uh, there are many examples um, uh, let me give you just uh, one or two uh, the Volkswagen I'm sure you have heard about the about the Volkswagen uh, crisis uh, that uh, what got Volkswagen in trouble it was just cheating lying to 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 the people um, uh, Boeing is a more recent example the Boeing uh, 737 uh, airplane a more recent example and uh, I could go on and uh, show you another uh, half hour an hour other examples uh, similar examples where um, ethical thinking uh, took the backstage of uh, making money and uh, uh, and uh, let, let's uh, take the war apart uh, of course uh, bad things happen to wars but um, bad things also happen in the industry and um, and uh, the industry is so focused on profits and uh, and other things and uh, that the company even forget the, the long-term growth um, uh, in, in the equation and they very often even sacrifice uh, the long-term growth and sacrifice the jobs of their employees for that uh, that short-term um, for that short-term profit and it is sad to see how um, how uh, ethics uh, or how doing the right thing has been uh, abandoned by, by by many companies, and I really hope that uh, that that comes back. Uh, and uh, there's just one the, the the most important thing in this equation is the people that get hurt, and that's the part that bothers me. Uh, for example, if you have a bad quarter in um, in in in, in the, the the free market, um, uh, if a company has a bad quarter. Uh, their stock uh, takes a big dive and uh, the best way to get that stock back up is uh, to lay off people. 
And while in Europe uh, and other countries that's more difficult, but in the United States uh, that is still uh, something that uh, that uh, that they do and that that they like to do. So um, uh, uh, here you uh, uh, you lost uh, uh, some money this quarter and. Um, Okay, a very large number of people lose their jobs and immediately Wall Street rewards those companies, the, the stock goes back up. And that is a very, very sad thing because um, it is those people who uh, sacrificed, uh, who gave everything to that company uh, to get them there. And it's also, by the way, those people who get them out of the, uh, the hard times that, uh, uh, that they are in. And um, uh, it is uh, unfortunately the, uh, the, the, the care for the people who uh, also takes the back, uh, the back seat uh, together with the, with the ethics thinking. And, um, and I hope that uh, one of these days uh, companies will find a way uh, uh, back to uh, uh, more ethical decisions and to more uh, people-focused decisions. Uh, I hope that uh, one of these days they find their way uh, their way back there. Some companies have done very well at this, by the way, and uh, it's something I discovered in the last uh, uh, twenty years how how really important and meaningful this can be. And uh, there are um, very good examples um, uh, of companies who. Um, uh, who say, hey, um, if I treat my people right, I can do anything I want to, because uh, if I treat my people right, they do everything for me. And that's what I need. That's what we need to be innovative. That's why we need to be uh, uh, to, to sustain. Um, so, uh, 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 and uh, some uh, uh, company owners say that's all they have to do, focus on the people and you get, every, you get all the rest uh, as, a, uh, as a collateral. Well, it may not be that easy, but I, I do believe that in the, in the near future, um, uh, ethics and the care for people will have to play a much, much bigger role. But I also, um, I think I'm getting off the subject of innovation now. That's not the only things that, uh, that matter for innovation. But let me uh, go uh, uh, and uh, spend a few minutes on, uh, on, on, on innovation. Um, the idea, every, a lot of people think innovation is just having great ideas. Okay, well, that's, um, uh, that is something that is definitely an important point. But uh, today, um, uh, that is not enough. And you all, uh, and from the idea to a successful product, um, there's, there is a lot more. And uh, there's probably the idea is only a few percent at the end of the day uh, of the effort that goes into, into a good innovation. And um, I uh, have spent, um, uh, for me, uh, some great companies when it comes to innovation are, of course, the Googles, the uh, the uh, company like Uber and uh, many more uh, of, of these, Amazon and uh, many, many more like that. And they have found a way to, um, to efficiently create that innovation. And I'm back to the, what I said before about the research and development work. Uh, you have to be the best at, uh, at what you research, but you also have to be the best at how you do your research. And the same is for innovation. You have to be the best at how you create that innovation. And that's where the 
the, the Apples and the, uh, the Googles and the Amazons uh, have shown us the way. Uh, uh, that's how uh, studying how they did it um, and see how you can learn from them. I think is an extremely important part uh, for for the industry today. That uh, and um, uh, since I uh, like to be a little bit critical, I'm quite critical of uh, the, the the universities, the 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 people where uh, companies go to to learn, and um, I uh, think they are always a few years behind, and uh, and rightly so. Uh, they. Uh, uh, their uh, work is based on research, and you can only re do that research when you have the data. And uh, the data is yet to come uh, for a lot of that stuff, so they can study it. But things happen so fast. And I think here is where uh, I think um, they would have to speed up a little bit and uh, catch up on what's going on out there, and then make sure they teach it to their students. Then, when they students go to companies to work, uh, they are uh, able to apply uh, that uh, that new thinking, that new stuff. And uh, so, I uh, I'm I'm looking forward to to see that uh, happen out there. Uh, uh, that uh, a lot of um, uh, things like uh, what I teach today uh, is making it into the curriculum of, uh, of universities and, and so on. That, that it's if, if that is something right very people. important, uh, Norbert, that is something very important, the one that you are saying, uh, particularly the part that had to do with education. In that, of course, you know uh, that um, education is receiving a big hit now for, for, for <laughs> very many angles. In that the education that we have, the system, the structure that we have it, like you said, it's not serving the people enough. Sometimes it's a little bit late, you know. But the question is, what is actually the solution? How do we f um, have a kind of educational system that is not based on the system? That should be based on the era of technology, you know? yeah. How do we even create that kind of educational system? Well, uh, let me uh, start with uh, the companies, okay? Um, and I've seen it again and again. It happened to me. Um, uh, you you come in with all these uh, great ideas and um, uh, you want to do things differently. Uh, but then when you come into a company, you realize uh, that's not uh, the way it works. Uh, if you want to uh, become successful in that companies, you have to, first of all, play it by the company rules. Um, uh, played by the company culture and so on and so on and so on and so on. And uh, by the time you are done with that, uh, you can't be innovative and creative anymore. I'm sorry to say that because uh, now you, you are in a mold, you are in a rut that, uh, that will make it extremely difficult for you. But um, uh, the, the school uh, system is kind of uh, the, a little bit the same. Uh, these, uh, these young kids come in uh, very excited, very creative. And the first thing they have to do is they have to learn rules and, uh, and behaviors and so on, which is important too. So don't get me wrong, that's very important too. And then um, uh, you, uh, you teach them all that. And uh, by the time... Um, uh, they, they learn all that. Uh, now you uh, conformity has uh, taken over and um, and a lot of their, um, uh, their innovative, uh, their naturally innovative behaviors uh, uh, take uh, uh, play a secondary role because you are not getting um, success in school. 
by continuing uh, those behaviors that uh, that are not really um, uh, some of them are not really uh, 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 aligned with uh, with what the what the school uh, what the school tries uh, to teach you, and um, that makes it uh, that makes it very difficult. But that's the way it is. That's the way it happens. Or let me give you another example. I uh, learned in college how to do research, and um, I. Um, Okay, I had to do it. Uh, it uh, I had to write a thesis and I had to get a, a stamp and a grade on that thesis. So I had to do it that way. But I found out that uh, that's not the way um, companies should do research anymore. Companies cannot afford to do that anymore. And I, in the 80s, uh, yes, we were still doing it. But today, companies can't afford to do that anymore. Companies today have to do their research like the Googles and the Amazons are doing their research. And um, uh, because the, the, it, it, it happens so fast out there today, and it is so expensive to, to do the research uh, the way uh, I was taught it in college, that it, 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 um, if, uh, the, the, the two things is that the speed is one thing, things happen so fast. And um, it is so expensive. And uh, so companies have to change. They will have to change the way they do innovation. And a lot of them do. A lot of them do it very well. And um, uh, other ones um, have to learn to do it faster and more efficiently and uh, more productive. And, um, and uh, as I said, it is out there. Uh, I don't say that I know it all. I only know what I have learned. But uh, uh, there are many, many people out there who know it. There are many companies out there who know it. And, uh, and a lot of uh, companies have to um, uh, learn and uh, get better at doing innovation, as I, as I keep saying. And uh, some people have shown the way. And um, uh, it can be learned. Uh, I hope one day it's be, it's, it can be learned at the colleges. And, uh, uh, but it can definitely be learned uh, in the industry. There are enough people out there who teach it, and um, it uh, it will work very well. Uh, so uh, I hope they don't wait until it's too late. I hope they uh, uh, jump on it uh, right now and um, and change their um, uh, their processes, change their thinking, especially change their culture because um, uh, the culture is uh, what gets in the way of innovation. A lot. Um, a lot of companies uh, have been burned so many times uh, by um, by uh, new things that they are extremely risk adverse, extremely conservative, and um, um, and uh, they uh, a lot of um, executives uh, see the innovation uh, not on their um, on their management cycle because they're only there for what is it four or five years, and it used to be it takes ten years to come up with a new innovation well that will happen uh, my my successor will have to take care of it well that has changed that will happen on their shift now it has to happen next year or the following so it has it will happen on their shift and um, uh, as i said there's still um, a lot of um, uh, learning to happen out there so. all right now some of these uh, uh, company execs they do really understand because, of course, they read the 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 Washington Journal and the New York Times. Of course, they understand what is going on, no? 
But why did they go to the to their company and they still adult or the no not running at this at the speed of light? Because that is how the system is today, though. Like you correct, it's a, everything is speed now. So correct. is it that the the idea of innovation is not being sold correctly to some of these company execs that they're not making the right decision to uh promote innovation or, or what? Why why are they don't why are they don't running? Yeah, well, the execs, uh, uh, I hope the execs are not the ones who now start to have the ideas, okay, because um, they are uh, uh, relatively far remote uh, from uh, from the, the technology and the customer and so on. So I hope that the execs let the people who are good at innovation and who are the experts at it, uh, uh, let them do it the way it should be done. And so very often uh, it would be just uh, supporting them and taking the obstacles out of their way uh, uh, more than anything else. So, uh, but uh, how innovation is done today, um, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, it, it all starts with uh, with new thinking, it starts with the studying of the environment, uh, which, by the way, changes extremely fast. And uh, it, it uh, as I said, it, it's it's a lot about um, finding uh, opportunities, finding customer problems, uh, leveraging technology, and uh, maybe many other ones. But the companies who do it very well, I noticed that they experiment fast. They don't get uh, stuck with uh, a three-year um, scientific uh, study. Uh, they, uh, uh, the, the, it's the startups that have no money and have no time. Uh, they do it uh, with the bare, bare, bare minimum. And, um, and it uh, turned out that that bare minimum is, is actually the, the best way to do it. Because um, if you work like they work, uh, you can um, uh, assess 100 new ideas for the price of a single one if you do it in the traditional system. And I think uh, that kind of thinking and uh, that uh, and um, also that kind of, uh, of agility where um, even executives know that what we thought would work today doesn't work next month. And we have to be agile to realize that and, uh, and to change next month again. And the next month we have to change again because uh, things out there uh, don't accommodate anymore what we were what we have been uh, working on. So it's that kind of thinking that I think makes the innovation uh, makes the innovation possible. It's that flexibility, it's that agility, but it's uh, not only the agility in the the technical part of the uh, of the innovation, but it's also that agility in the marketing, in the in the acceptance, in um, in in everything that is related to that plays a role. It's the agility to play uh, the the games of the politicians, uh, or, or you name it, because. Uh, the, the, the last few years, there have been very, very significant changes in the global politics, in the global, um, uh, in, in, in global, uh, what you call it, in global markets, in policies that were created uh, that affected global markets. All that has to be part of the of the innovation, and all that changes every day or every other day. And it's the uh, it's uh, that kind of thinking to be ready to embrace that and not say, "Hey, I'm going to force my innovation on uh, uh, on the market because uh, next year it's going to be ready." 
that's not the way it works anymore. The thinking is, um, I need to change that innovation, the development of that innovation every day. So it keeps pace with all the other changes that go on. That uh, uh, and and in fact, um, uh, the launch is not like it used to be. Next year we launch a new product. That's not the way it goes anymore. We launch the new product when it's the best time to make money on it, and that can be next month or it can be in two years from now. So uh, even that plays a role in it, and uh, I I believe it's that agility and uh, and uh, the, the agility to deal with that uncertainty to um, uh, to use that uncertainty to your advantage to become fast to become agile um, that will uh, uh, play a big role in innovation in the near future now uh, that is if we are talking about the future gener future then of course future generation are, are definitely the the protagonists of that reality why do we get more young people into innovation because if they are innovating they, they are not going to run out of something to do company will always look for them because they know how to adapt so how do we do that yeah well uh, unfortunately uh, the society uh, the schools uh, and uh, and so on um, uh, do not uh, necessarily promote that and uh, so i believe um, and um, uh, let's uh, also face it um, artistic innovation and uh, technical innovation may not be exactly the same thing uh, but anyway uh, uh, i think uh, schools uh, from the very beginning um, have to be um, uh, a little bit um, uh, cognizant of that fact that they uh, that they can uh, do a lot of uh, damage and that they do not necessarily promote that um, I've seen a lot of companies uh, create these innovation rooms and, oh man, they are super, you go in there, there's free food in there and, um, and uh, the walls are hanging full of stuff and... Um, but at the end of the day, uh, when uh, the, the people who work in these rooms come up with this great idea, um, uh, it's like, oh, no, 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 we cannot do that. Uh, that and uh, uh, that obstacle is still one of the biggest ones, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's uh, like, uh, uh, why not at least try it? Why not spend two days? of trying it and a uh, hundred dollars of, of trying it. And I love that idea of that company who, um, who uh, uh, gives their employees a credit card and uh, they give them a credit card that they can buy something without having to go through purchasing and without having to get the approval from anybody. They can go and buy something and then also uh, they give them tokens tokens for how they can uh, use company resources to experiment. And if I limit it, the, the, the credit card is not worth a lot of money, but you don't need a lot of money if you think about how can I do this with the least amount of money? And that's part of innovation. So not a lot of money, you go to Amazon or someplace, you buy it and uh, you go in the lab and somebody in the lab is actually um, uh, uh, helping you uh, uh, work on it. And um, and then maybe uh, in a few weeks, uh, you give the people a little bit bigger credit card because what they, uh, the, their first thing they tried was very well worth it. So um, it's the, uh, 
there can't be any bureaucracy uh, anymore to this. Uh, it, it, it's too fast to uh, to be bureaucratic. So you have to be uh, you have to be flexible, but you have to also manage the risk and the exposure uh, within your company. Uh, but uh, that's just one one little example. But I also believe uh, education uh, has to come first. Um, neither executives nor engineers are educated uh, the right way. And, uh, and then um, uh, uh, also now you scale it back to the schools and you scale it back to, um, uh, to, the, to the earlier schools. And I think uh, that the, the schools from the early days on have to prepare people to be successful in these companies. I tell you, today schools are preparing uh, uh, students very well to be successful in, uh, in the traditional big companies. They're preparing them very well. And I keep uh, blaming my kindergarten uh, teacher. She was a Franciscan sister. I keep blaming her on uh, having not prepared me well for corporate America. Well, she did the best she could. Okay, <laughs> she, but uh, but I I believe that my kids going through American kindergarten have been very well prepared for uh, American corporate culture. They have not been very prepared, uh, well prepared for uh, uh, for being innovators in in uh, in uh, uh, traditional American corporate culture. But uh, from the kindergarten on, I believe that my kids have been very prepared, very well prepared uh, for that career. But I think that has to be scale, uh, worked down a little bit, and maybe uh, some of the needs uh, for creativity. Uh, that we have uh, discovered now will find their way uh, through colleges, even into high schools and even into grade schools. So um, I hope so. And uh, yeah, yeah. And also thanks to to the power of internet, uh, many people can now uh, start to learn things on their own. Huh? So yeah. if you find an idea you want to experiment on it, especially in coding, which is the big, which is the most important. Uh, uh, phase of our uh, of our evolution because you can yeah. you can basically write a code and tell a computer what to do and it does it that it have never happened before you see yeah, so if children can learn how to do this they would never be short of work I, I repeat again you know in fact they would never have to work for somebody they have to work for themselves because they are the are the captain of their own industry this is going to be very very important Yes, right. and uh, yeah, yeah, from, uh, from the very beginning, uh, uh, kids uh, should learn diversity. They should learn that there are many, many different ways of solving a problem. And uh, they, uh, they, should, uh, uh, they should go out and, exp uh, and see as much as possible. Um, uh, maybe museums, maybe, uh, maybe flea markets, you name it. Uh, they, uh, uh, all that uh, stimulates their brain. That will stimulate their creativity. But I think especially through high school and college, um, uh, uh, everybody uh, should uh, be aware that there's more than one way of thinking about uh, things. There's more than one way of solving problems. Uh, diversity is something that is uh, real life. And... Uh, 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 diversity is there. Diversity is very good, and uh, diversity in thinking is excellent. And uh, uh, that uh, uh, there is not a lot that uh, schools and colleges have to do to uh, to make a big impact on it. And uh, and uh, then uh, of course the industry, um, uh, when people are finally there working, um, has to uh, finish that off and. Uh, 
stay uh, stay with that uh, with those same uh, with those same ideas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, now we're moving towards the end of the podcast. Of course, we are going to touch a little bit about your book. Uh, can you like? I mean, your first book, no? I know you are writing the second one also. Can you like touch something like uh, the key message of this book? Let, let's share a few 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 minutes there. Yeah, okay. The 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 key. The my first book is about uh, what I did at Goodyear over probably fifteen years of uh, of learning from um, from many companies out there, especially uh, from Toyota and uh, and so on. Uh, how they uh, completely revolutionized uh, manufacturing and how that same thinking can be applied uh, to how we do um, uh, R&D work. And that uh, Goodyear, when we started, um, it took forever to do anything. It, um, it, it took five years, six, seven years to, to develop a tire. And um, at the end, uh, we were doing the same work in a year, a year and a half. And, um, and also, uh, there was, everything was late uh, when it was delivered. And um, in a few years, uh, suddenly everything is on time. And uh, you can actually make marketing plans. And, um, and uh, the, 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 the product is there uh, when it's needed. And um, uh, all those uh, things had a huge big, had a huge big impact. So uh, that's what my uh, uh, my first book uh, is about. It's more about um, the, the the research, uh, the, the the more the traditional research. The, uh, the, I mean, it's all uh, it's all tires that go to 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 an um, to a known customer. I uh, at that time uh, did not have done enough work on uh, on innovation itself. Uh, the, the 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 front phase or the disruptive um, uh, innovation or whatever you may want to call it, and uh, I had done some work, but it uh, very little of that uh, made it into my first book, and uh, that's why I actually wrote my second book about to um, uh, to take a competent company, to take a company that is a leader in their industry, okay. And then uh, uh, to um, uh, to turn that company into a, w a sustained winner of that whole industry, and uh, how they leverage the innovative thinking and the many other principles uh, uh, of uh, of lean or um, or um, uh, lean manufacturing or whatever, uh, or of uh, lean innovation by now, because uh, I had the opportunity uh, now to learn from many good uh, companies uh, uh, like uh, uh, like Google, like. Um, like Amazon, like Uber, and so on, uh, and uh, how uh, how they became uh, the, the the market leaders. So the question is, uh, how can anybody uh, become uh, a market leader like that, a sustainable uh, force in, uh, in 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 their industry? By um, uh, leveraging what I call the the, the the principles of lean innovation. So my second book is actually my first book is a story. It's the story of uh, the transformation at Goodyear. My second book is a totally invented story. It uh, it's a business novel. I uh, I invented a company, and I'm uh, uh, the, the the company is the, the leader in the industry, but uh, their profits have been flattened out, and uh, they realized at the right time 
what they have to do uh, to uh, to become a sustained uh, winner in their industry and they did it and of course it has a happy end of course but uh, so that's pretty much uh, a lot of the the, the publishing that, that that i have done today i uh, i also publish on other subjects like how to engage people how to uh, how to care for people and um, I did a publication recently on industrial ethics, and it, it's definitely a subject that I will keep writing about because it's another important subject. I think that, um, and if I come up with something else in the next few years, <laughs> uh, I will. I may write about that and share my uh, thinking and my experiences about that. That's interesting. I, I, I want to know: is there? A reason why you decided to invent that story in the second book? <laughs> yes, there's a good reason. The main reason I wrote an, um, a, a business novel is because it's so easy to explain things. Uh, it, it's much easier to understand the things if you uh, if you put them in the right context. And uh, uh, I um, uh, the the story follows the context. By the way, the the context came first. Uh, what I was trying to uh, uh, to communicate uh, was there first. And, but then you have so much flexibility to uh, to work your story around all that uh, that it became uh, that it became relatively easy, and uh, there is um, uh, it, that kind of I would say was the the the, the, the driving force for writing a business novel. All right, that is absolutely interesting. Thank you so much for that. Uh, now, we are about to close the conversation. Of course, we talked a lot about different arguments relating to, of course, you and, uh, and your professional work, uh, what you have done, especially uh, in the Goodyear tire industry, uh, company, sorry. Uh, so we talked also a little bit about the war, your experience, and, and all that. So we talked a lot about interesting things today. Uh, now, to conclude this conversation, maybe there is something you wanted to say that I didn't ask you um, how would you like to, to conclude it? Maybe it's also an advice you want to leave for people or for companies, or it can be anything. Please conclude it in your own way. Well, yeah, uh, maybe, um, uh, uh, and thanks for asking uh, that question. I think that's a, that's a very good one. Um, I uh, learned everything the hard way. And uh, it started with uh, learning on the farm and, um, uh, it, it, it went through uh, my whole education uh, and especially at the company. Uh, when I started to work at Goodyear, uh, I would uh, say that uh, if there was a way to do it wrong, I did it wrong. If there is a way to get in trouble, I got in trouble, okay. Uh, I made many, many, many mistakes and especially I was never comfortable to work with people um, uh, in the first place. And maybe that's why I became an engineer. Uh, and um, uh, I learned an enormous amount of things. And as I said, most of the things I learned them the hard way. And if I had another career, I would do it totally different. Okay. So that led me to, uh, to the conclusion that, um, hey, uh, if I can do something meaningful today, uh, why don't I um, teach uh, folks 
who uh, are learning now, who um, or who are in a career in a, in a company or whatever, why don't I share that experience with them so they don't have to go through that uh, very difficult um, uh, learning curve that I went through. But then I have to take it a lot further. Don't just look at me to learn from. There's many, many people like me who have shared their experiences. So. Uh, my uh, advice to, to, to young people, hey, be a learner. There's so much out there. Just take advantage of it. Uh, there's an enormous amount out there on the internet and everywhere. Take advantage of it. Don't uh, come from school into a company and think you know what you, what you are doing because you do not know at all. And uh, uh, you have to learn uh, through your whole career. And I, uh, I encourage people to read, to, to go and find uh, the knowledge that they need. Uh, it will help them. And um, uh, the biggest thing, uh, the, the, the saddest part is that it's and it, it, same thing for me. I never knew it was out there. I discovered it very late. So um, uh, my big advice, uh, learn it. And um, it's out there. Uh, take advantage of it. It will help you. It will help you make a better career. It will help you to make a better life. So that's why I share my experiences. And uh, I hope that people uh, read it and uh, call me and uh, talk to me. I'd be, I'd be, I'm very happy to share uh, all of that. Uh, uh, and um, uh, I, um, I always love to teach. And I keep I have, that has not changed. I still love to teach and um, I found something useful to do in retirement. So. And if there is anything that you have learned throughout these years uh, working with a good year, what would you say? Well, I have learned how to, uh, uh, um, how to uh, work better and um, uh, how to, um, uh, how to respect uh, people more and um, and I've learned that uh, if you um, uh, if you respect people uh, you get something back and I learned that if you care for people you get something back and I think uh, that um, uh, uh, that is a, a very important uh, part that uh, that I learned uh, uh, maybe too late uh, but uh, I, I, I did learn it and um, uh, it uh, today uh, you cannot be successful as an individual anymore. I think today you you can only be successful if you figure out how to uh, do the best uh, you can uh, for everybody and with everybody, and um, uh, and uh, that uh, maybe uh, that was one of the most important things. I thank you so much. It has been a pleasure on our part, and your conversation has really been very motivating for us. Thank you very much, sir. Well, thank you for letting me share some time with you. It has been a pleasure. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate our review Obehead podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead A14. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.